dessert. There's coffee back there if you need something to keep you awake. Um, I don't know about you, but that was a great lunch. Thank you, Camille, for picking everything and to the Hilton catering staff for providing it today. Um, I'm Jeannie O'Connor. I'm the vice president at the Claire Boothloose Policy Institute. And I have the privilege today to introduce our luncheon speaker, Margie Ross. Margie serves on our board of directors, and she is the president and publisher of Regnery Publishing, the nation's leading publisher of conservative books. If you don't have some of her books in your bookcase, you need to get some because they are the best. Margie joined Regnery in 1999 as vice president and general manager and took over as president and publisher in 2004, making her the first person outside of the Regnery family to hold that post. Regnery has had over 75 books on the New York Times bestseller list and 11 of those at the number one position. They have published books like um, America by Dinesh D'Souza, The Amateur by Ed Klein, and they will be releasing in the near future Kirsten Powers' book, The Silencing, and Ann Coulter's Adios, America. Before coming to Regnery, Margie served as a senior group publisher for, Pub for Phillips International. Margie is one of our most active board members, and it's been a pleasure to have her uh, work with us. She, whenever we call on her, she is there, and thank you so much for that. She has worked with our students. She goes out to college campuses. She comes to our events. She gives us books for our luncheons. She is just one terrific woman. Um, and she, in 2005, was presented with the Loose Policies Woman of the Year Award. She's also been in our calendar, and she is a great woman for everyone. She graduated from Dartmouth College with a BA in English and earned her master's in journalism from the American University in Washington, DC. She lives with her husband, Chuck, who is a fabulous man, has three great daughters, um, two of them who are out of college, Sarah and Trina, and Rebecca, who is graduating from high school this year and will be going to the University of Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Margie Ross. Thank you so much. Jeannie, that was wonderful. I appreciate it very much. And thanks to the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've had a lot of fun talking to many of you already, and I appreciate uh, your all being here. Um, and uh, I appreciate your uh, support for all the things that Claire Booth Loose does. The Policy Institute is involved in so many things, as you've already heard this morning, and uh, we really appreciate the support of all the women here, both students and former students. Um, it's really important. You can, you can just tell by what we heard from the, the young ladies who did the student uh, panel how, how critical it is that uh, Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute and all the staff and people who work there, how, how important their support is in helping these young girls um, navigate their way through what they face on college campuses. So we really appreciate all of that. Um, as you heard, I'm Margie Ross. I run Regnery Publishing. We are the uh, oldest and uh, most uh, prominent publishers of conservative books and authors in the country. Um, we've been so for 68 years, uh, founded in 1947, and um, very early on in our history, Henry Regnery, who founded the company, had the foresight and the courage to publish many of the uh, most important books at the very beginning of the modern conservative movement. So um, he published uh, William F. Buckley's first book, published Russell Kirk, published Whitaker Chambers, published Barry Goldwater. And um, more recently, as you heard, we've, uh, we've really continued that, uh, that trend and that mission by publishing what we consider to be most of the uh, prominent conservative thought leaders of the day. Um, so we've uh, published most of the conservative authors that you know and love, including, I'll read you a little, a brief annotated list. Um, 
Ann Coulter, Michelle Malkin, Laura Ingram, Kate Obenshane, Rebecca Hagelin, Meg Meeker, Mary Beth Hicks, Carrie Lucas, and of course men, David Limbaugh, Dinesh D'Souza, Mark Stein, Mark Levin, Ed Klein, Newt Gingrich, David Horowitz, Dennis Prager, Robert Spencer, Donald Trump, um, and many more. And um, you know, one of the things you may have noticed in my list is that uh, I started off with a list of eight uh, female authors. This year, we're going to add four more prominent women to our, uh, to our publishing list with uh, Kirsten Powers, Stacey Dash, Crystal Wright, and Sarah Palin. So we've got uh, quite a lineup of, uh, of conservative women. <laughs> you know, clearly, as you can see from that list of female authors, it's Republicans who hate outspoken women, hate strong women, hate self-sufficient women, and are waging a war against them. No, wait. In fact, um, there is a war on women here, I believe, um, but it's being waged not by the right, it's being waged by the left. It's being waged across the internet, as bloggers and well-funded websites like Facebook and Kickstarter shut down women who do not embrace their liberal agenda. And I'm going to give you some examples of that today. It's being waged, as you no doubt have heard today, on college campuses across the country as professors and administrators punish young women who do not sign on fully to their liberal worldview. It's being waged by this president and this administration, the IRS and other, other agencies as they harass, bully, attack, particularly women, on the right. And it's being waged by the mainstream media as they ridicule, demonize, and try to marginalize any woman who dares to defend values for which the liberal media have contempt. Ironically, I think this is ironic, it's being waged by the Democratic Party who are likely to nominate a woman for president. So how can I possibly accuse a party who nominates a woman for president of being anti-woman? I guess it comes down to this. I just have a higher opinion of women than that. I, I believe, <laughs> I do, I believe that women, most women are too intelligent and have too much common sense to vote for a candidate simply based on her gender. I think it would be wonderful to have a woman president. I think many women would do an excellent job as chief executive, just as they do in many states and many major corporations, not to mention other countries who clearly got that memo before we did. But um, you know, I, I was reading the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, and uh, a headline caught my eye, and it was uh, KPMG, the big uh, accounting firm, to name their first female CEO. So I thought, well, that's great. This is relevant to my speech. Here's a major accounting firm naming their first female CEO. But the funny thing was, later in this article, it says, um, with the elevation of Miss Dowdy to the firm, two of the big four accounting firms will have women as CEOs. She's not the first woman CEO of the big four. She's just the first woman CEO of her firm. There are two of the four big major accounting firms in the United States now have women as their CEOs. Um, on, in the same issue of the Wall Street Journal, I noticed there was an article about IBM. And it said, IBM chief searches for Big Blue's next act. I thought, oh, that's interesting. What are they saying about IBM? Well, it turns out IBM's chief is also a woman. But I thought it was really interesting that was not the subject of the article. That was not the point, which I think is a wonderful statement about women in business today. It's no longer, frankly, all that remarkable to have, that's not the lead story anymore, that the CEO was a woman. It was a story about what the CEO was doing with her company. So, um, you know, you have, there are many, many examples, Pepsi-Cola, 
has a woman CEO. Hewlett Packard, obviously, with Carly Fiorini, had a wonderful woman CEO. Um, Angela Merkel in Germany, um, chief executive, obviously, of a major country. Um, Susanna Martinez, who we talked about. Uh, Nikki Haley, who we talked about. In my job as president of Regnery, I meet and talk to many conservative women, young and mature, uh, famous and not famous. I meet women who work in politics and publishing, uh, women who are friends of my three daughters and the mothers of those friends. Uh, as a board member of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, I have the privilege to meet many wonderful women, including many many brave young women on college campuses like the girls you've heard from and met here today. Um, and, uh, and so I have a particular vantage point for, uh, from which I can view and sometimes experience this, uh, what I call the four, four main battlefronts in this war on conservative women. So to me, the first battlefront that we need to consider is one that is particularly troubling because it's so widespread and it's so insidious. And that's what's happening on the internet. And I, I'm going to share with you a couple of examples which you, you may be surprised to hear because there are things going on on the internet, and I just don't mean social media where there are individual attacks, but sort of large concentrated efforts to shut down conservative women and conservative women's ideas. Um, the, the first one I'll talk about is, uh, is going on in Facebook. And you probably know that Mark Zuckerberg, who's the, the founder of Facebook, is a big liberal and a big contributor to, uh, to liberal causes and liberal candidates. But, um, but even I was surprised to read about, about this. Um, Facebook managers are deploying a new software upgrade that will dismantle a lot of the groups of like-minded political activists unless they get a special software key from the company. So does anyone want to guess who got the key and who did not get the key? Um, Pamela Geller, who has an organization that's a sort of active anti-terrorism organization. She has 15,000 members in her group. No key. Um, but uh, let's see, the Coalition to Save Marriage in New York, they had 1,000 members of socially, social conservatives, no key. Um, there's a Chicago libertarian activist, 60,000 members, no key. Um, the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence got the upgrade for their 1,000 members. We changed over very smoothly, said the manager. We just basically clicked the upgrade button, checked it over, and we have a tremendous increase in our participation. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation also got the key for their 300 member group. Um, the Labor Express Radio got the key for their 104 member group. But if you look at most of the conservative groups, um, big and small, they didn't get a key. And of course, uh, Facebook says that there's no you know, political agenda. I just look at the evidence and say, I think there is. Um, you may also have heard uh, another story, and this is another book we're going to be publishing next year. But um, there was a, uh, a, a little burst of publicity when, um, obviously, around the Gosnell trials, the Dr. Gosnell, um, infamous abortion doctor, and um, who actually went on trial and, and is in jail. And yet, uh, the mainstream media, and particularly the, uh, the feminist groups, pretty much ignored this story entirely until they were forced to cover it by a couple brave journalists, including Kirsten Powers, and um, a couple documentary filmmakers with whom we're going to do a, a, a book next year. But one of, the, one of the interesting things that happened before, they, um, before these filmmakers got a chance to make the movie was they were going to raise money for the documentary 
exposing what happened with the Gosnell trial, they're going to raise money on Kickstarter. And they had raised money before on Kickstarter for other movie documentaries they had done. They went to raise money for this one, and Kickstarter kicked them off. Said they couldn't, uh, couldn't raise money because their ad violated Kickstart's policy. And uh, Anne McElhaney, one of the documentaries, said, really, what, what policy is that? Because I can't find any policy posted on your website or anything else. And when I look on your website and see all the other people who are raising money, I find a lot of things that seem offensive to me. But uh, somehow, you know, a, the, the most egregious story of, uh, of this abortion doctor killing babies is, uh, is too offensive for you to be able to, to list on, uh, on your website. Um, P.S. They went to Kickstarter's competitor, Indiegogo, and they raised $2.1 million, which was the largest fundraiser Indiegogo had ever done. Um, and yet Kickstarter wouldn't let them raise money to talk about their, um, their pro-life movie. Um, so another battlefront in the war on conservative women that I want to talk about real briefly and give you a couple examples that you can research um, is the mainstream media. We know that the mainstream media is dominated by liberals. And, um, and one of the most frustrating parts of that is that insidious bias that creeps in without people even realizing it's happening. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that I did a little research on was looking at the covers of some of the major magazines. And uh, you can't see this, but I did a little PowerPoint. And there was, I have a little contrasting visual, I'll explain, on, um, on the covers of Time and Newsweek with Hillary Clinton on the cover, and the covers of Time and Newsweek with Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman on the covers. Um, and you, first of all, there were uh, over 20 covers with Hillary Clinton. Um, there was one with Michelle Bachman. I think there were five or six with Sarah Palin. So there's a, there's a huge imbalance. But, but the insidious part to me is um, this, these magazines are purporting to be news magazines. And yet, let me read you what the headlines were on the covers of these magazines. So for Hillary Clinton, one cover was the most powerful woman, not women, this isn't a series, the most powerful woman in American history. That was one headline. Another one was the state of Hillary and what we can all learn from her. Another one was this beautiful photo, turning 50. Um, another one was simply Senator Clinton, question mark, before she was senator. Um, all of them were positive. There was never a negative headline that you could find on Hillary Clinton. You all probably remember the photograph that they used of Sarah Palin in a jogging suit, looking a little bit silly. And the headline was, how do you solve a problem like Sarah? There was another cover of Sarah Palin. And you might think, oh, it's kind of a pretty picture. And it says, she's just one of the folks. And then underneath it, there's a parenthetical. And that's the problem. And of course, then there was Michelle Malkin, where they chose, I'm actually good at this in my job. I love to pick horrible pictures of Hillary Clinton and put them in my book jackets. <laughs> but um, Newsweek magazine is supposed to be a, a, a news magazine. It's supposed to be journalism. And yet they picked this horrible picture of her where she looked crazy. And the headline was, The Queen of Rage. Now, I just don't find that to be fair treatment. I don't find that to be, to, to follow any sort of journalistic ethics that, that I learned. And um, I think it's clear that the mainstream media is trying to ridicule and marginalize conservative women. Um, many of you may know that uh, Katie Pavlich wrote a wonderful book called Assault and Flattery. And she documents many, many instances of the, this war on conservative women. And in particular, she calls out a lot of people in the media, and including people who 
sort of hide behind humor and hide behind features so that they um, slip their politics in under the radar a little bit. So, you know, she has examples from everyone from David Letterman and Bill Maher to the, the publisher of Playboy. And um, of course, virtually everyone on MSNBC. I recommend her book to you as a, as a really deep dive into this media war on conservative women. Now, these two battlefronts are very public. We can all see them, um, and, and happily, there are many organizations like the Media Research Center, which do a very good job of calling out some of these public examples of the war on conservative women. But um, I want to share with you a story that illustrates what I term as, as the third battlefront here, and that is um, the social battlefront. The experience that most of us have had when we go to a party, a reception, an event that is not at all political, and realize how um, awkward and difficult it is to have a conversation about what we believe, and how people who hold a liberal mindset have no problem at all with blasting out their opinions and basically assuming that everyone in the room either agrees with them or is simply an idiot. And um, I was reviewing a proposal from a prospective Regnery author and she told a story which I'm going to read to you because I thought it perfectly captures what uh, women face. And this is something that is, is very hard to quantify, but, it's, but I think it's very powerful. Um, and to me it was very interesting because the woman who gave me this proposal is Penny Nance. She's the CEO and president of Concerned Women for America. She's a very um, high level leader in the modern conservative movement and terrific lady. And so I'll just read you a little excerpt from what she sent in. She said, I had forgotten what it feels like. For the past several years, I have been fortunate to be surrounded by like-minded people in my job, my church, and my social life. By like-minded, I mean thinking, compassionate, conservative people of faith. Boy, did I get a wake-up call when I attended my husband Will's annual work-related holiday party this past year. The conversation started out innocuous enough. As we were waiting for dinner to be served, we found the common ground that most parents do, our kids. Everyone in the group had children in college or applying to college. It was all very collegial until someone asked what our 17-year-old daughter would like to do as a career. I replied something neutral about broadcast journalism, and then after a couple of follow-up questions, my husband had the nerve to say that Claire would very much like to work as an on-air talent for Fox News. Now, I had to give Will props for trying to appear normal, because he also said, or CNN, because let's be honest, Claire would have absolutely no interest in working at CNN. But at the mention of Fox News, you would have thought Will said Claire hoped to club baby seals to death for a living. I swear if we had said she had planned to be a stripper, they would have been less astonished. Fox, Fox, they crowed with faces that looked like they were about to choke on their bacon-wrapped scallops. The University of Charleston mom that I had talked to earlier, her eyes almost bugged out of her carefully coiffed head as she shrilly reminded me that we are in Maryland. I wasn't sure what that had to do with anything, but I politely explained to her that we had driven up from Virginia. <laughs> One of the men conspiratorially leaned toward my husband and asked in a concerned voice if we supported what to him was clearly a wholly unacceptable career goal. Always charming, Will laughed and assured them that Fox is the news channel that we watch most in our house. Oh, now they got it. Somehow we had gotten past human resources. <laughs> the company must be doing a special outreach program to idiots. <laughs> Most of the crowd quickly closed ranks, leaving only one of the original members to continue the conversation. 
Before I left, I mentioned, just loudly enough for everyone to hear, that Claire was also planning to register as a Republican and would be voting in the 2016 election. I'm sure that gave everyone nightmares that night. And you know, this spoke to me because I have had the same experience and I suspect a lot of you have. And I think um, as we talk about how we combat this war on conservative women, it's important to realize that these things happen not just in political settings and not just in public venues that we can sort of witness from a distance, but in our daily lives. And that, in a lot of ways, makes what we need to do, in my opinion, much trickier. But I'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, of course, I should not overlook the fourth battlefront which doesn't need much more explanation than you've already heard, and that is the college campuses. Um, the, the examples that I hear regularly from many of the uh, Claire Booth Luce students and interns um, shocks me, infuriates me, um, and, uh, and astonishes me. I, um, I'm, Obviously, the, uh, the stories you heard gave you a good insight into that. I'll, I'll only add that I was really interested at our uh, Women of the Year Award luncheon that we had a couple months ago, how many of the young women there wanted to talk about the almost universal ready for Hillary campaign that's going on on college campuses. And many of those young women were asking, what should we do on our college campus when you know, all of the dormitories, all of the lecture halls, everywhere we go, these posters are plastered everywhere, and everyone, again, simply assumes you're a woman, of course you're going to be, run you're going to be working on the ready for Hillary campaign. Um, and, and this is a you know, particularly difficult thing, I think, for a lot of young women to, uh, to overcome and to deal with. Um, I, I mentioned Kirsten Powers' new book coming out uh, next month called The Silencing, and uh, I recommend that to you as well. She has some very riveting examples of what is going on on college campuses, and um, Mr. Flowers, I'll, I'll say that she, she talks a lot about what you mentioned, not just the students, but the faculty, the administration, and how the silencing, she calls it, um, affects conservative professors who fear for their future of their career, are, are, are positive that they will be shut out from any advancement, any hope of tenure if they reveal their own personal political persuasion. So in most cases, they simply try not to talk about it and try to keep it um, hidden, um, which of course is, uh, is pretty much the opposite of what we hope our kids will experience on campus. Um, in, uh, in Kirsten's book, she relates in particular one story about a, uh, a demonstration on a college campus. And I'll tell you just a little bit about that. Um, the, uh, the incident happened when um, a young woman at the University of California, Santa Barbara, um, wanted to uh, protest um, uh, abortion. She was a pro-life young woman who wanted to uh, host a civil, small, supposedly perfectly allowed by the university protest. Um, and what happened, uh, the attack on her was led not by students, but by a professor. And that's, that was the most shocking thing. Um, the, uh, the, the, this professor said, um, you don't know what you're talking about. She said, you're, she, and, and the, the girl who was uh, leading the protest said she was cursing us. She was calling us idiots. She was interrupting us nonstop. We barely got a word in. She threw the pamphlet at me. They were handing out pamphlets. And after a while, some of the other students gathered around, some of her students. They started yelling at us. One of the girls kept coming up to me and saying, can you please just be a decent human being and put your sign away? I told her I understood it might be hurtful, but that we had a right to be there. And she could not just tell us to go away. But this wasn't enough 
for the professor. The professor was inciting the mob. She was talking to them and walking between them. She was saying, so should we take away their signs? Should we do it for them? They don't have a right to be here. They are feeding you a bunch of blank. She started a chant. The professor started a chant of tear down the sign. And eventually the professor ripped the sign out of this young girl's, teenage girl's hands and took it away, brought it up to her office, got a bunch of other girls together so they could rip up the sign. Now, I, I have no idea what she hoped to teach her students by this display, but, um, but what young women who hold conservative values um, face on college campuses when this is what a professor does as an example to the other students there is, uh, is really shocking and something that we, that we all need to take very ser seriously and something we need to mobilize against. So, um, you know, a lot of this is discouraging and uh, depressing, although when I listen to the student panel, I'm very encouraged. Um, but, uh, but I think, in fact, conservative women already know how to win this war. I think there's a few things that we do naturally um, that will help us in this fight. And so I want to, to share those briefly with you, remind you of what those things are. Um, in, in a lot of ways, it could be summed up with a very simple piece of advice that I got early in my career from a woman. Uh, very first job I had was working for a woman entrepreneur. And um, she encouraged me to relax and smile. And by smile, I really do mean smile. I mean look happy, not angry. Look inviting, not smug. But I'm also going to use smile as a little rubric for a, a five-step plan that we can all follow. And in a way, um, when, I, when you think of smile, what I want you to think of are the five key differences between conservative women and, and radical feminist liberal women, all right? Difference number one. In my opinion, liberals argue from a position of weakness. Their worldview, right? Here's their worldview. People aren't able to support themselves. The government must do it for them. People aren't able to right, make the right decisions. The courts will do that for them. Parents aren't able to tell right from wrong. School administrators will do that for them. Communities aren't able to keep their children safe. The lawyers will do that for them. It's all about weakness. And of course, when it comes to foreign policy, liberals are champions of weakness, appeasement, apology, and in my opinion, abdication of responsibility. Conservative women, in contrast, believe in strength. We believe our families are strong. We believe our communities are strong. Our faith is strong. Our resilience is strong. Our courage is strong. Our soldiers, our patriotism. So I want you to remember the first key difference, the first letter of smile, S, is for strength. We are strong conservative women. And we are stronger than most of the liberal women that we meet. Key difference number two. I don't know about you, but I keep noticing that most liberal arguments sound like a 12-year-old. Jimmy's parents let him play after school. It's not fair that I have to do my homework. That's what most liberal arguments sound to, like to me. It's not fair that some people earn more money than me, never mind that they had to work harder and risk more. It's not fair that some students get better grades and are accepted to better colleges, never mind that they studied harder and they did their homework. It's not fair that the white cop or the white worker or the white military officer got promoted, never mind that it had nothing to do with the color of their skin. It was entirely based on their job performance. It's not fair that I don't have free health care and free retirement benefits and free parking. Never mind that none of those things is free. Someone always pays for it. Or as one of our favorite conservative female leaders, Margaret Thatcher, said, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Margaret Thatcher knew what conservative women know, 
that we don't indulge in these sort of childish, sophomoric worldview. We're mature. That's the M in smile. We're mature. We take a mature view of the world. We're grown-ups. Key difference number three. Most liberal arguments, as you well know, are not really built on facts. They're built on wishful thinking. They're built on uh, emotional arguments. Um, in fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of liberal arguments, as, as the female students have told us today, um, can be easily overcome if you actually come prepared with a few facts. You can, over, you can win the debate. Um, and I think that's because of this uh, tendency to want to emotionalize everything and to, to not bother with the facts. Um, I think of Elizabeth Warren as a woman who, surprisingly, is another sort of hero of the, the far left female movement, and yet she was pretty happy to play with the facts of her own background and somehow pretend that she was a Native American. And uh, I don't know, she <laughs> looks pretty, pretty much like me to me. But um, she, she used that to promote her career and probably robbed some other folks of a legitimate chance to be um, a, a person of diversity in places that were trying to get a more diverse population and a more diverse workforce. But that didn't matter because, you know, she knew better and she was going to use that to her advantage. Um, I think of this latest uh, scandal at UVA with the, uh, the story in Rolling Stone and how the, their liberal worldview uh, led them to embrace a story without checking it out, without learning any of the facts, without doing the most basic element of research. The facts didn't really matter. The story told the story they wanted to tell to the disservice of women. And so that's the story they ran. And the worst part is, well, they, all of it's bad, but one of the worst parts is that um, the editor of Rolling Stone has now said, well, of course we're not going to fire that reporter. She does a wonderful job. We've, we've printed, we have printed many of her stories before, and we will continue to do so. Can you imagine what would happen to a conservative journalist who had basically completely fabricated a story, not checked out a single source, not done the first step of, the, of a first-year journalist, and, um, and, and then had printed that story and, and gotten that kind of response? And, um, to me, uh, the difference of conservative women and, and the difference that we, that we need to embrace is when we come to debate, we come informed. And that's one of the most important things we need to do. We need to be strong. We need to be mature. We need to be informed. And as we are, our arguments will definitely win out. Um, I'm sure you've also noticed that uh, when the liberals, especially liberal media, can't attack the message. They attack the messenger. And uh, one of the most vivid examples of this um, is, uh, is what often happens, regularly happens, to Michelle Malkin. I don't know if you've heard her speak where she um, will read to you some of the names and the insults that have been hurled at her from the seemingly tolerant and, uh, and pro-women uh, media and, uh, and internet, but um, they're unbelievable, just a few. Well, there are a lot of words I actually can't read out loud, um, so we'll have to bleep them out, but you're just a manila whore shaking and waiting for the Republican fleet to come in. This is what they've posted on her site. We know you're a lying pond scum and a whore to your profession and not a very expensive one at that. Malkin, you're a dumb blankety blank. You're a Filipino bit, yeah, yeah, blankety blankety blank. <laughs> How much does the GOP pay you to be their propaganda whore? How does it feel to be a paid prostitute for the Republicans? Here's a good one. First, I would like to tell you that your face is asymmetrical. 
Assuming that you aren't yet old enough to have survived your first stroke, this is indicative of a serious psychological disorder. It, it, it goes on and on. Um, the, the idea that that would be tolerated by anyone on the left against anyone on the left, of course, is, is inconceivable. And yet that's, what is, uh, that's what's hurled against her. Um, so I think what I also encourage you to do, in stark contrast to that kind of treatment, is to be loving. Conservative women by my experience, very rarely commit ad hominem attacks. Very, very rarely. It's actually very interesting and inspiring to me. They're much more likely to be loving. We are. In our dissent, in our disagreement, in our debates, in our discussions, in our discourse. Um, and I encourage you to remember that. Um, or as a, a very good friend at, at work says to me all the time, love the sinner hate the sin. Uh, and lastly, one of the things that I notice about a lot of liberal women is that they don't really like to get their hands dirty. They're awfully good at telling other people what to do, and they're good at hiring other people to do a lot of the hard work, but they're really not that good at doing the hard work themselves. Now, that's not universal. I certainly know liberal women whom I respect who do a lot of community service. But um, I'll tell you a story of a good friend of mine, a friend of mine from college. She took early retirement from her government job. And she confided, confided in me that she wasn't really sure what she was going to do with all her newfound spare time. Um, so I recommended volunteering. And I told her that uh, it really enthusiastically about the joy and the, the, the great fulfillment that I had gotten from volunteering at a wide variety of things. I volunteer with my synagogue. I volunteer with Claire Booth Luce. I volunteer for uh, my alumni association and um, have been involved, now involved with the volunteering for my choral society. It's just fun, it's rewarding, it's fulfilling. I, and I, so I said to her, I said, gosh, you have all this experience working with people struggling with addiction. Maybe you could volunteer. And she looked at me in shock and she said, well, God, if I did that, I'd want to get paid for it. <laughs> um, really surprising to me. But in great contrast to that, I find that conservative women get engaged. They really get engaged in their communities, in their activities. They take the step beyond simply doing their job and letting other people worry about the future of the world, or more importantly, the future of their community. Um, so I recommend to you to smile. Take my five-step plan. We need to be strong. We need to be mature. We need to be informed. We need to be loving. We need to be engaged. These are our five things that conservative women are already really good at. And I believe that they are a sort of five-step plan for our winning this war on conservative women. Um, I was going to show you some photos of conservative women fighting that fight. Um, but my uh, technical difficulties prevented me from showing you these. But I have photos of um, women leaders as well as young women on campus. I even have a photo of my youngest daughter at Mount Vernon with George Washington when we went there last year for President's Day. Um, but you know what? I don't really need those photos because you can just look around this room and see all the smiling faces around this room. And this is the face of conservative women today. And so I encourage you to remember that um, these are the girls we're fighting for. These young women who are the future wives and mothers and leaders of our great and exceptional country. We owe it to them to fight for their freedoms, to teach them that along with freedom comes responsibility. And we owe it to them to find and promote good role models and to make sure that the first female president of the United States is someone they can truly respect. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Questions? I will take any questions you have about book publishing or politics or anything I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs> I'm just curious for the young people here, um, what your best advice is to them if they want to help control the narrative by writing books, what should they, you know, what courses should they take as they're at that place in their life, what's the best preparation if they want to be future writers? I think that's a great question because there are a lot of women who want to be future writers and also to me being a good communicator is one of the most important skills you're going to learn and have and develop no matter what career you go into. So um, I encourage you to read a lot. I think the best way to be a good writer is to read good writing. I think the, the other critical thing to do is to write a lot yourself. There are plenty, there are probably limitless opportunities for you to write, whether it's blogging or writing for the school website or school newspaper or um, the alternative, the conservative alternative paper if there is one on your campus. So um, to me, the, uh, the exercise of writing and the model of reading uh, both great literature, which frankly is worth reading, and reading a lot of the current conservative books that are out there. And frankly, I, I recommend that you read a handful of books from the other side so you know what the women and men who are sort of drinking the Kool-Aid of liberal thought, what they're being fed and what they think is uh, is the you know is going on in the world, and that will help equip you even better to um, to construct your own arguments. I was just wondering if maybe we were expecting these guys to do a little bit too much uh, lifting on their own. And um, I know I've been proposing for a number of years, being one of the few people still in agriculture, that if you don't start speaking up, you can't expect the generation behind you to speak up. And um, I don't, when I came here, I also did not see this as strictly women's type thing. I do believe that um, whenever there's an opportunity, the, the things that I heard this morning is that people believe in faith. Uh, they believe in all these other conservative type issues and such, and that rather than just letting them pass by, if you can um, interact with another group so that you're working together, a lot of these things that are coming up, be it in transportation or agriculture or environmental extremism, we need to pull together on all those and speak up because they all go back to how our country was founded and our freedoms. And if if we just pick out our little niche, then we have a whole lot fewer voices than if we all work together to, to kind of stop some of this craziness. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think um, <laughs> we don't want to heap all the responsibility on you ladies, on the next generation. Um, although I guess I do heap a lot of responsibility on my daughters. Uh, but, but it is up to us to be good role models and, and to speak up and to get engaged. And um, the, the interesting thing to me is, I think one of the best opportunities for women to be engaged and to influence the culture isn't necessarily getting directly involved in politics. There are so many other organizations that we are involved in and, and when you make when you develop personal relationships with other people, male and female, you have a much easier time, I think, on one-on-one -on -one, talking to them and maybe helping steer them to a, to a more free market, a more small government, a more faith-based um, worldview. This will be our last question. You've obviously had an um, incredible amount of success in a heavily male-dominated field. Um, do you have any tips on navigating that? Have you even seen any struggles with that or any comments? Um, you know, that's, that's something I think about a lot, actually, because um, the, uh, the book publishing world 
has a lot of women. There are a lot of, you know, all of us English majors, we all went into book publishing. So there are a lot of women in book publishing. Um, there are not a lot of women uh, in business uh, roles, and there aren't a lot of women. Um, it, it, it doesn't happen to be true. Um, there have not been a lot of women at the sort of executive level of most of the companies that I have worked at. And so um, most of the time, the vast majority of the time in my career, when I've been in a executive level meeting or a senior board meeting, I'm the only woman. Um, I think that uh, someone, it might have been uh, Regina back there, who gave, who we were talking about this earlier, um, said, and, and I think this is absolutely true, um, one of the most important uh, pieces of advice I have, um, and I realize it's something I do and, and we do, and that is to um, remember not to take things personally. I, my personality is I just don't take things personally. I really don't. And, and that's just the way I am wired. But it has been a big help to me because I am all about talking about the ideas, the content, the business, and not getting caught up in feeling personally attacked or criticized um, when someone disagrees with me. So I think um, that's a good first step, really, to remember, try to remember, that um, when, when somebody disagrees with you, don't immediately assume it's about you. And, and a lot of times, if you don't assume it's about you, but it's about the idea, you can steer the conversation to really be about the idea and not to be about the person. And um, my experience is, um, you know, here's where Donnie and I agree. Um, America is the number one best place for women to succeed. And we have every opportunity to do that. I think if you come prepared, if you come informed, if you come um, ready to talk about ideas rather than worry about you know, whether or not your feelings are hurt, you probably will find in most cases that you get met with a very respectful and positive response. Thank you.